All right, all right. So um, I have the great honor and privilege to introduce tonight's speaker. Um, our speaker tonight is Kyle Powers. He is uh, a husband and a father of three, three cute um, Hispanic adopted kids. I love that. Um, it's like the heart of the father, right? Just adopting us. All of us are adopted into the Ohana of Jesus. So good. Um, Kyle is uh, over Maui County with FCA, which is uh, the Fellowship of Christian Athletes. And so he's been partnering with uh, a lot of the uh, schools up country, and he's trying to make his way throughout the, uh, the rest of Maui. And so it's kind of your first, his first year in it. And uh, yeah, stoked. So how about we warmly welcome Kyle uh, to the stage tonight. And uh, if you guys uh, are comfortable, maybe just stretch out a hand and we'll, we'll pray for Kyle tonight. Jesus, we give you praise for tonight. Uh, thank you so much for Kyle, Lord. Thank you for the years of um, faithfulness, Lord, that you have shown to him. Um, thank you, God, that in response to your love for him, God, he has loved you. And uh, I've only known him for a, a shorter season than you have, Lord. Um, and uh, But grateful, grateful for his uh, um, gift to communicate your word, God. So tonight, Lord, um, my prayers for him that he would have peace, God, and um, just courage to speak, Lord, what it is that you have put on his heart to share, and and uh, pray for us, God, that we have open hearts, Lord, to receive from you um, what you have for us. And so we're excited to uh, uh, hear tonight, Lord, from you, Lord, uh, through Kyle, and Lord, so we give you all the glory, honor, and praise. Um, in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Um, Kaipo was one of the first pastors I met here when we moved to the island uh, two and a half years ago or so, and he's been nothing but uh, kind and hospitable and a uh, great, great friend now. So I'm excited that uh, as we have stepped into this role with FCA, that we get to continue um, partnering with a church like Waipuna. You may or may not know this, but you guys are one of the churches uh, that help support our ministry. We are a official missionary of Waipuna Chapel, uh, which is amazing because FCA, if you've never heard of it before, is in over 100 different countries. It's been around for about 70 years. But our family, in partnership with a church like Waipuna Chapel and a few others um, on island, we get to kind of launch it on Maui for the first time ever, which is really exciting. Um, we get just Our hope and our, our dream is to use sports as a platform to reach the next generation and, and use sports as a bridge to share the gospel with kids. So that's what we're doing, and that's our hope. Um, that's not what tonight's about, but if that interests you in any way, shape, or form, I do have some of my FCA stuff at the Connect table just as a way of showing where I'm going to be hanging out after service, and I'd love to uh, get to know you a little bit more and even share more of that with you. So um, yeah, thank you. I'm excited to be here. Um, I will share a little bit of my upbringing just because most of you don't know me and because I have the mic, so I get to. Um, I grew up outside of Portland, Oregon. Um, anybody Oregon, Oregonians? A few of you? Yes, I love it. Um, I loved sports. I played anything, but even more than sports, I loved anything where I could win. So if it was a competition, I was in every time, every day of the week and I did not like losing. My favorite sport was always, has been always, and will always be basketball. Basketball became uh, the way that I made friends. It's how I hung out with my friends. It drove me in a way as a kid that not much else did. 
I, I got good grades so I could play basketball. I finished my homework so I could go outside and play basketball. I got a job so I could have money, so I could drive, so I could go play basketball wherever and whenever I wanted to. It was, uh, I consider basketball a gift that God has given me um, as something that I'm passionate about, that I get to walk into as a way that when I'm playing basketball, I am a different person. I am more of who God created me to be. For some of you, maybe it's sports, but it's probably not. It might be music or art uh, or something else, but I would be willing to bet that every one of us has something that God's created you to love, something that you love to do that when you're doing it, it, it makes you come alive. Maybe it's parenting, maybe it's fixing cars or solving math equations. I don't know. Some people like that kind of stuff. And that's great because God designed you that way and God designed people that way. Uh, but for me, it was always basketball. I was never the best. I had to work to be any good at all. Um, I was not the greatest shooter. I was not the tallest, as you can see. I was not the fastest. Uh, but I often worked the hardest um, and often worked the hardest on defense, which is a little less fun for people. And so usually there was a place for me to play. I want to share a story. Um, as you can see, this idea of being with God is what we're talking about tonight. And if you saw the bumper, uh, Emmanuel, it is never too soon in my book to start talking about Christmas and singing Christmas songs. So when Sean said, hey, there's an open weekend, would you be willing to teach? I thought, let's get Christmas started as soon as we can. So Emmanuel tonight, God with us. Um, and I want to share a story uh, from when I was a kid involving basketball. Uh, it was kind of one of the first moments in my life where I ever sensed, I kind of had a with God moment where it was real for me in a way that it's sort of hard to describe. So uh, I just want to try to paint the picture for you. I was a teenager. I was probably 16 years old at the time. It was the off-season for basketball. And if you know sports in the off-season, you just work harder and you lift weights and you run and you shoot more shots and you, know, you do all these types of things because you want to be a better team than you were the year before. So it's off-season. Um, and this particular week that I remember, um, my friend and I, we had decided, you know what we're going to do? This is a great idea. Every day after school, we'll run five miles. We'll have a little bit of a break, and then we'll jump in on the school's, you know, off-season workouts and open gyms and things like that. This is great. And for the first couple of days, it was great because I was 16, and so, you know, I could feel like I could run 100 miles. But uh, day three, it started feeling a little bit harder, and day four, it got a little bit harder. And, and unfortunately, because of the way that I was, you know, raised, nutrition wasn't really a part of my uh, mindset. And so usually the meal between a five-mile run and the school's off-season workout is usually McDonald's, a cheeseburger, a large French fry, and a Powerade. And if I was feeling fun, I might have even had a McFlurry because they were amazing. Uh, but naturally, you know, by day four, my body's starting to hurt. I got shin splints for the first time and only time in my life. I declared I would never run enough to get shin splints ever again. It hurts. I was tired. I was exhausted. Day five, I'm at my end. Now, this is all physical stuff, right? About a year later from this moment, my parents get divorced. So I imagine there was some emotional life stuff going on in the home at the same time. But as a 16-year-old kid, I didn't have a whole lot of tools to deal with that stuff. So it was like, just play basketball more often, okay? So just run another extra mile. Walking out to my car at the end of this, you know, off-season practice, and I don't have my keys. 
I don't know where they are. I'm frustrated. If you've ever done this before, lost your keys, you're at your car trying to get into your car, you know it's frustrating. My wife would tell you that I haven't changed much because this you know, isn't the first time or last time it happened. And so I'm standing at my car. I'm physically exhausted. I'm at the end. I don't have my keys. Yes, I am young enough that I had a cell phone in high school. And so I call my friend, and he took my keys home in his bag. It was not very kind of him to do, uh, but it was an accident, so I forgave him. He didn't live that far away from the school, probably about a mile, mile and a half. So I decide, you know what, I'm just going to walk to his house. I'm going to go get the keys. I don't remember all the details of the walk or the reason. You know, I, I, I've told this story many times, and I always laugh at myself because I'm like, why didn't my friend just bring him back to me? What kind of friend was that, you know? And, and later I'll get to, like, I get to his house, and then I had to walk back. He didn't drive me back to the school afterward. Like, clearly, he must have been doing something important. My guess is he was probably watching his younger siblings, so he couldn't leave the house. I'll give him the benefit of the doubt. He is a really good friend. So I walked to his house, and, and here's the picture I want you to paint. Think of a 16-year-old kid walking along the sidewalk. The traffic's coming this way over my right side, and I'm walking, and I'm walking, and I'm just tired, and I'm frustrated, and I'm starting to get like angry, and I'm talking to God, and you know what I decide to do? I'm going to sing some worship songs out loud. This is how I'm going to get through this moment, you know? So I'm Singing, here I am to worship. You guys know that song? Here I am to worship. Here I am to bow down. Here I am to say that you're my God. And then all of a sudden, so again, keep picturing this, I start crying. So I'm walking, probably with a little bit of like limp. I'm crying. And nobody stopped to see if I was okay. First of all, if you see people crying and limping on the side of the road, you should probably check on them, right? Nobody did that. So imagine, you know, 16-year-old kid crying. I'm walking. And the reason I started crying was because as I'm walking and I'm frustrated and I'm physically exhausted, I'm at the end of myself because my response was to choose to draw closer to God and sing a worship song. I just started feeling like, hey, God's with me right now. He's walking this walk with me. And it wasn't this like, I didn't see anything. I didn't hear anything. The keys didn't magically appear in my pocket. Like I said, I still had to walk back to my car. My parents still got divorced a year later. Like none of the environment changed other than my awareness of his presence with me. And everything changed. Everything changed. And I was a teenager. But that kind of moment, that Emmanuel moment in my life, like changed me. I've told this story over and over and over again because I'm constantly pointing back to it of like, God is real. I knew that I knew that I knew in a way that I can't explain or describe that he was just with me, right? And I hope, I, I sincerely hope that each of you have had one of these moments. I know that God wants you to. He, he wants to be that near to you. He wants you to feel that with him. The environment didn't change, but my problems just weren't quite as big as they were before. And the reality is not that God was not with me before this moment, and then all of a sudden he was, but I had developed some walls, whether it was doubt, neglect of his presence, the sin in my life, that it caused it to become hard to believe or feel that he was with me. He, he didn't leave me. He didn't decide, hey, I'm going to go be with somebody else. That's not who God is. He's with us, God with us, not God with one at a time, right? Uh, God with us. But I, as a human, put up these barriers to sensing his presence. 
And I believe in that moment, I didn't push my barriers down, but God pushed from his side through my barriers. He sensed where I was. He sensed my desperation. He sensed my needs. And he decided, I'm going to meet your needs. And, and the, what he met my needs with was not a ride to my friend's house, was not the keys in my pocket. What he met my needs with was his presence. And I think that is so often how God meets us. That is so often how he meets our needs. Is like there's financial troubles, there's relational troubles, there's, there's just troubles, right? And God's like, hey, I'm with you. I'm with you. I'm with you. And there's power in his presence. And sometimes the power of his presence does change the circumstance. And that's beautiful and that's amazing. But that's just not always the case. And for me in that moment, it wasn't the case. But, but the reality of his presence was, was there. Here's one of my main ideas today. So if you're a note taker, I got this one for you. How near to you you believe God to be will affect every area of your life. How near to you that you believe God to be, not, now, not how near to you he is, but how near to you you believe him to be will affect every area of your life. It'll affect your relationships, your motivation and your drive, your parenting, your work, and so on and so forth. How near to you you believe him to be will affect every area of your life. This morning, we're going to start in Matthew chapter 1. We're going to read the story of uh, the angel coming to Joseph and this, this moment of telling him, you know, hey, don't leave Mary. There's good stuff coming. Say, we're going to read that. Um, and then we're going to skip back to the Old Testament because Matthew, our author in chapter 1, uh, he quotes a, a story from Isaiah. This, this story of the virgin giving birth shall name Emmanuel, right? So we're going to read it in Matthew, but then we're going to jump back and read kind of the, the larger context in Isaiah to give us a little bit fuller idea of why did Matthew insert this quote here? Um, so let's read it together. Um, if you don't have a Bible or you, if you didn't bring your Bible, first of all, bring your Bible next week, okay? If you don't have a Bible, find Kaipo, find Tim, Find Kayla, find somebody who looks like they're in charge and say, hey, I don't have a Bible and they will give you one. Um, I believe there's actually like a shelf back there with Bibles on it so you don't even have to tell anybody you don't have one. You can just go grab one, okay? You don't even have to tell them you have one and you want a new one. Okay, so Matthew chapter one, verse 18. A uh, little bit of context. So he, Matthew has just finished the genealogies. And uh, Matthew is a popular place where people start reading the Bible because it's the Gospels and usually advice is, hey, you should start reading the Bible in the Gospels. And it's the first one. So I would be willing to bet this is probably the most common place people start reading Matthew chapter one, verse one. And then they're like, the son of, the son of, the son of, what am I reading? Skip that. Let's go to chapter two, right? Uh, but I, I want to share this to say that genealogies in the Bible are extremely, extremely important especially if the genealogy had anything to do with the line of David, which was going to bring us the Messiah, which is all that chapter 1 has to do with, with Matthew. He's following Jesus' lineage all the way back to Abraham, the father of the nations. And there's so many nuggets in this uh, section of the genealogies between the amount of generations that there are and the cool things that are in that, the people that are involved that, that Matthew specifically tells us. Because in their culture, right, it's the, the father of, the father of, the father. They're following the male line to get to from Abraham to Jesus. But did you know there's women involved in this? And it says the mother of, or, or you know, the father of by so-and-so. And there are, you know, one of the women that's included, Tamar. Another one, Rahab, Ruth, Bathsheba. Um, a few of these women are not even Israelites, but they get included into Matthew's depiction of the lineage of the Messiah, Jesus. And they're not even Israelites, these are women who showed wild amounts of courage in their stories. If you don't know the story of Tamar and how she like 
tricks her father-in-law and forces Judah to be the redeeming father to her child. It's a wild story of courage for any woman at any time, but especially in her day. If you've never read the book of Ruth, it is one of my favorite books in the entire Bible. It's only four chapters. You can read it like tonight when you get home. Okay? It is, doesn't talk about Jesus, but Jesus is all over the pages. Okay? This is a book that through Boaz and how Ruth shows loyal love. The Hebrew word is hesed. It's, it's a hesed kind of love that is just a really hard word for us to even use in English because it's, it's just a different thing. So like look up hesed love and it's like, Usually people use two words, like loyal love or unfailing love, because it's like one word just doesn't capture what this Hebrew word means. And Ruth is just a picture of loyal love throughout this entire book. And the, the other person who most often in the Bible is talked about with hesed is God. And she is just this picture of who God is throughout the entire story. And then you have Boaz as the kinsman redeemer for their family. And that's like Jesus, like all this stuff. So I say this to say that um, I think Matthew does this very intentionally it's a nod to women, their courage, their place in God's story, uh, the inclusion into bringing of the Messiah. Um, and and here's, here's the point with, with Mary. Including the names of these women reminds the readers that Mary's pregnancy and Jesus' birth may appear scandalous at first, but it's only a part of a long tradition of great women throughout their history who give rise to great children, all of whom redeemed Israel in a special way. Another one that I didn't really talk about was Bathsheba. And you've probably heard that name because you know David's story. And Bathsheba was like David's downfall. But the reason she's included is because of her second son, Solomon, who becomes king after David. And so she, this wild story of David's downfall with Bathsheba, but then the way that the Lord weaves things together that like her child is gonna be the one that becomes king, but not only becomes king, her child is gonna be the one that the line of the Messiah comes from. Okay, so just really, really cool. And I think Matthew's trying to just get us to see like this idea of a virgin birth sounds scandalous, but have you read the Old Testament? It's full of scandal, right? Okay, so here we go. Matthew chapter one, verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. And Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. But when he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David. Now, real fast, we just did genealogies, right? So we got to Joseph, and actually Jacob is Joseph's dad. But in this moment, when, she, when the angel addresses Joseph and says, son of David, the angel is making note of, like, line of David, lineage, like son of the Messiah, messianic line, okay? So David not being Joseph's dad, J Jacob is actually Joseph's dad. And we just read that in the, in the genealogies. Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now, okay, that was end quote from the angel. Now our author, Matthew, verse 22 shares, all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Verse 23, behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel which translated means God with us. And Joseph awoke from his sleep. He did as the angel commanded him, angel of the Lord commanded him and took Mary as his wife, but kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son and he called his name Joseph. Now, 
I, I read through this section. I read through this, this moment with Joseph and the angel. And the angel says, Mary's going to have a son. Don't leave her. Name him Jesus. He's going to save his people. Our author, Matthew, breaks into the story, says, hey, remember Isaiah where this, was, where this all was prophesied about? And like a child's going to be born, his name will be Emmanuel, God with us. And then, you know, back to what happened. Mary has a son, and Joseph and Mary named the boy Jesus. So I'm like, wait a second. Is his name Emmanuel? Is his name Jesus? Like, what's going on? Why did Matthew, our, our like narrator of the story, why did he throw in this story of like what happened, but like the name's Emmanuel, the name's not Jesus? So, you know, I didn't grow up in Jewish school. You may have. But for me, I don't have, so this comes from Isaiah chapter 7, and I don't have that just naturally uploaded into my brain like the original readers and hearers of this story would have, this uh, gospel that Matthew wrote. You may not either. So what we're going to do together is go back to Isaiah chapter 7, and we're going to kind of read the fuller context of where this comes from, and I think it's going to give us a bigger picture of this idea of God with us, Emmanuel. As you're turning there uh, to Isaiah chapter 7, Matthew's gospel, all the gospels are written uh, a little bit different. There's, there's the synoptic gospels, there's John's gospel that's way different, uh, but they're all written to kind of different audiences. And Matthew's gospel is written mostly uh, to a Jewish audience. So he's not trying to convince these people that there is a God. They believe in Yahweh. He's not trying to convince them that there is a Messiah coming. They've been waiting for him for generation after generation. He's trying through his letter, through his gospel, to convince these readers that Jesus of Nazareth, this human boy from Mary and Joseph, is that Messiah you've been waiting for. So all of his intentionality of what stories he uses, the language he uses, the you know, moments like this where he says, remember the Old Testament, remember Isaiah? Okay, this is Jesus, this is happening. He's trying to make all of these notes for them. Okay, chapter 7. Now it came about in the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah. Again, genealogies are really important. They keep telling us whose son and father these people are. These three guys, actually, they're kings. So if we would have read the entire genealogies, we would have just read their names in Matthew chapter 1 because they were also a part of Jesus' line, Ahaz, Jotham, Uzziah. Jotham and Uzziah are depicted throughout Scripture as faithful kings. They were kings that were faithful to Yahweh. Their son and grandson Ahaz that we're going to have our story about, quick context, not a faithful king. Wanted nothing to do with following Yahweh. Was following pagan gods, doing pagan practices, sacrificing babies, like all kinds of wild stuff throughout uh, Israel's history. Ahaz was king for about 15 years, and it was not a good 15 years, okay? A little bit of context for Ahaz as we read his story. In the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, king of Judah, that Rezin, the, son, the king of Aram a bordering nation, and Pekah, the son of Ramalia, king of Israel, the northern kingdom, went up to Jerusalem in the southern kingdom to wage war against it, but could not conquer it. Two nations coming to wage war against the nation of Judah, the southern kingdom, could not conquer it. When it was reported to the house of David, saying, the Arameans have camped in Ephraim, another name for Israel, the northern kingdom. His heart and the hearts of the, his people shook as the trees of the forest shake with the wind. We're going to keep going, but I really like to stop and talk. So uh, Ahaz, our king, hears two nations. They're coming. They've camped against you. They want to conquer you. Isaiah, our prophet, our narrator here, kind of gives us a glimpse. Like, they're not going to conquer it. And he's going in and out of, like, present moment, future, present, future. And it's like, we know as the readers, they don't win. 
But Ahaz in the moment, he's shaken like the trees in the wind. He's scared. He's afraid. He feels outnumbered. How is he going to survive? He thinks he's going to die. Like, this is not a good moment for him. The Lord said to Isaiah, go out now to meet Ahaz, you and your son, Shear Jashub, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the fuller's field, and say to him, say to King Ahaz, take care and be calm. Have no fear. Do not be faint-hearted because of these two stubs of smoldering firebrands. Think, you just had a bonfire up at Poli Poli. It was beautiful. It was giant. Uh, if you know David, he brought his torch and he just blew the whole thing up, okay? And then you, you got to go home. So you start spreading the wood out. You throw some water on it. But a few of the pieces of wood still have like smoke coming off of them. That's the picture here. It's like, this isn't some giant fire bond you, you got to be afraid of. This is a couple of sticks that still have some, some smoke coming off of them. Does that make sense? You with me? Okay. Take care, be calm, don't be faint-hearted because of these two stubs of smoldering firebrands on account of the fierce anger of Rezin and Aram and the son of Ramalia. Because Aram, another nation, with Ephraim, northern kingdom, and the son of Ramalia have planned evil against you, saying, let us go up against Judah and terrorize it and make for ourselves a breach in its walls and set up the son of Tabel as king in the midst of it. They want to take King Ahaz out and set up a new king, Okay. Thus says the Lord God. If you're ever reading the Bible and it says, thus says the Lord God, pay attention to what comes next, right? Isaiah says as God's mouthpiece, it shall not stand nor shall it come to pass. For the head of Aram is Damascus. The head of the nation is this city and the head of Damascus is Rezin, a human. Now within another 65 years, Ephraim will be shattered. So that is no longer a people. And the head of Ephraim is Samaria, Head of a nation is a place, and the head of Samaria is the son of Ramalia, a human. If you will not believe, you surely shall not last, or you will not be established. Think, uh, don't think, uh, if you will not believe, you will die. Think, if you will not believe, uh, you will not be rooted. You will not be established. A little note on that. So uh, Ahaz, bad king. Ahaz's son, King Hezekiah great king. Hezekiah actually ruled, uh, was a king for twice as long as his dad. Um, so it's one of those moments where like, if you will not believe, here's the end of your reign. Here comes your son and he's faithful. He gets to reign for twice as long as you did. Okay. That's, that's kind of what's going on as Isaiah says that to him. Part of the picture, these two nations that are coming against you, the heads of these nations are just human beings. They're, they are regular human beings like you and I, and they fail and they're broken. But who's the head of Judah? Who is the head of the southern kingdom that you are king over Ahaz? It's Yahweh. So what are these humans that are heads over these nations? What do they have against us? God is coming to Ahaz, trying to tell him, trying to come to him and trying to get Ahaz to see like, hey, just have some faith in me. Choose to be with me. Yahweh, Israel's king. And then we get our Emmanuel part. The Lord spoke again to Ahaz through the prophet Isaiah saying, ask a sign for yourself from the Lord your God. Make it as deep as Sheol or as high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, nor will I test the Lord. Now at first it sounds like, oh, that is so respectful of you, Ahaz. Really, 
the prophet, God through the prophet is giving Ahaz a chance to like, just take a step, take a leap of faith and, and like, let me give you a sign. Choose anything, deep, wide, high, choose something. Let me come through for you. And Ahaz is like, I don't even want to choose anything because I know you're going to come through and then I'm going to feel like I have to believe in you. I have to follow you. I have to be faithful to you. So Ahaz, like, this was not a respectful moment. This was like another step away from faithfulness, okay? So this is what God says. Then he said, listen now, O house of David. Isaiah doesn't say, listen now, Ahaz. He says, listen now, O house of David. So what he's about to say becomes this, moment for Ahaz, present for him. Right now, I'm going to say something for you, but house of David goes well beyond you. So this is something for you to remember for generations. We know post all of this that like this comes back to fruition in Matthew chapter one. Matthew brings it back up. House of David, hear this, okay? Is it too slight a thing for you to try the patience of men that you will try the patience of my God as well? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. God gives Ahaz the chance to choose a sign, but he doesn't want to even choose it. Yahweh stays faithful to Ahaz, even though Ahaz is not faithful to him. Yahweh says, this isn't going to happen. You won't be destroyed. The two will not conquer the one. Now, I love these kinds of moments in scripture because scripture is full of moments where humans are unfaithful to God, but he's still faithful to us. Because it reminds me that God will always be more faithful. He will be eternally more faithful to you than you could ever be to him. And that his love for you is not dependent on your obedience to him. His love for the the nation of Israel, his love for the promises he had made of the line of David, his love for the house of David was not dependent upon Ahaz's obedience. His love for us today is not dependent on our obedience. God just kept giving him opportunity after opportunity to turn to him, pursuing Ahaz, wanting Ahaz to choose him. In the same way today, God is pursuing you and me And and I I bet that some of you in here today, maybe you're even questioning this whole Jesus thing. You're not so sure about church yet, but you're here. Maybe somebody else made you come or because there's something that keeps drawing you back. I don't know what the reason may be, but God knows that you're here. He knows the difficulties in your life. He knows what you're facing and he just wants you to choose him because he wants to spend eternity with you. And he knows He was trying to get Ahaz to see that his presence, Emmanuel, what is the sign that's going to save you from this certain death? It's not some great military strategy. It's not like, it wasn't those moments where like, we're going to throw a fleece out and if it's dry, we're going to win the battle. God is just telling him, why are you going to win the battle? What's the sign? Because I'm with you. Because I'm with you. Because I have chosen to be with you. And it's just as true for us today. What's the sign that shows Ahaz he's safe? He doesn't need to be afraid. It's a child named Emmanuel. The sign to Ahaz that the two nations would not overpower the one is God's presence. The head of Damascus is a human. The head of Ephraim is a human. But the head of Judah, the beginning, the source is God, the great I am. And he says, Ahaz, I am with you. And God makes this promise, offers this sign to a king who doesn't even follow him isn't even faithful to him. 
The answer Ahaz to your troubles, your fears, is me, God says. The answer to the greatest hurdles you're facing in your life or that you will ever face is God's presence. But isn't that just who God is? In Genesis chapter one, Adam and Eve walked in the garden with God. That was the design of creation, an intimate withness. And sin's most immediate consequence in the garden was being separated from the presence of God. Adam and Eve had to leave the garden. They had to leave the place of walking with God in a way that humans have not walked with God since. But God doesn't stay far away for long. He's over and over again throughout the entire biblical story telling people how with them he is and showing us how much he just wants to be with us. In Genesis 28, 15, God promises to Jacob in a dream, the father of the nation of Israel. He says, I am with you and I will watch over you wherever you go. I will be, bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. In Exodus 3, Moses, is experience, Moses experiences a moment with God through a burning bush. In Deuteronomy 31, we read that God goes with us and will never leave us nor forsake us. In Joshua chapter 1, we read twice in this first chapter of God promising to Joshua in his commissioning that he will be with him wherever he goes. In Judges 6, it was God's promise to go with Gideon that gave him the courage to strike the Midianites against wildly giant odds. In Samuel 13, Samuel takes the horn of oil and he anoints David in the presence of his brothers and his dad. And from that day on, the spirit of the Lord came upon David. He was with him. Later, after our Isaiah 7 and Isaiah 41, God speaks again through the prophet and he says, do not fear for I am with you. Do not be dismayed for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will uphold you with my righteous hand. Jesus is born and Matthew depicts him as God with us walking among us, God with us in a way he has never been before as a human. At the end of Matthew's gospel, in the Great Commission, Jesus tells his disciples to go and to make new disciples, to baptize them and to teach them to obey all that Jesus had commanded. And what power do they go in? What authority do they go in? What is the sign of this for them? Jesus says, I will be with you wherever you go even to the end of the age. This, th there is nowhere we can go, nowhere we would want to go, nowhere where Jesus says, oop, everywhere but there. Even into our places of sin, Jesus does not leave us nor forsake us. The entire nation of Israel walking in sin with an unfaithful king, and God says, I am still faithful to you. And then it gets taken a step further. On the day of Pentecost and the ultimate display of God with us, his spirit, not just to be with his followers, God sends his spirit into his followers in a different kind of with us way. That's why the New Testament authors call us his temple. Because in the same way the temple housed the presence of God, now you do and I do. And we walk around as little temples displaying who God is and, and, and displaying Emmanuel moments all around us because God goes with us. But far too often, we forget this powerful, powerful truth. We neglect it. We ignore it. We uh, put up walls just like I did when I was a teenager and we're like, God's not really with me. Oh, he might be with them. God's not really with me. Well, when I go to church, he's with me. But that's not who God is. That's not what he says, right? Right? 
To King Ahaz, Emmanuel was a sign of deliverance, assignment to convince the king that victory on that day and for a future day for the whole house of David. And when Matthew references the same story, he wanted his readers to come to the same conclusion. Jesus, our Emmanuel, brings with him deliverance and victory over the enemy and over our everyday enemies. Because that's just what God with us does. That's who God is. In his presence is found the fullness of joy. In his presence, we can find courage we didn't know we had. In his presence, we experience love. We feel truth. In his presence, there's peace that surpasses understanding. In his presence, we, we experience redemption. Because of his presence on earth, he redeemed us. Through his presence in our lives, we experience healing, all kinds of healings. Through his presence dying, we find eternal salvation. His presence is the most powerful thing on this planet. That day, walking on the sidewalk, I felt his presence. I felt peace. It was an Emmanuel moment for me that I have held on to for the last, now I gotta do math of how old I am because I started that sentence, for the last like 17 years. And I've told this story over and over and over again because it was so real to me and it was powerful. And our battle is to remember. Satan's goal is to steal, kill, and destroy. He wants you to neglect, ignore, and forget that God's presence is in your life. Our battle is to remember that he is for you, he is with you, he is in you, to recognize that and then acknowledge his presence with you. And then to rely upon him God wanted Ahaz to rely upon him for deliverance, but you know what he did? You can, you can read the story. He, Ahaz gets this sign from God of what's gonna happen, and then Ahaz decides to go to another neighboring nation and say, hey, partner up with me so that I don't get conquered. And I bet Ahaz was feeling all good about himself. Like, I did it. I did it. We did it. This is great. God's like, just rely on me. Me. Don't go to that other thing. Don't go to those other people. Don't rely on work. Don't rely on money. Don't rely on this, that, or the other thing. Just rely on my presence, and I'm with you. Will you rely upon his power, his promises? My wife is actually convinced that sin for believers begins with forgetting. Forgetting who God is, who he says you are, and how near he is to you. When we forget, we start to rely on ourselves, on others, on our jobs, on our kids, on our money, and all of those things fail us. There's a battle going on for our souls, for your marriages, for your kids, for our island. And the enemy is crafty and cunning. And if he can get us to neglect, ignore, and simply forget that God's presence is with us, he is winning that battle. And he does it in the simplest of ways. I just want, I'll share a little bit. He distracts us. Maybe it's with work. So you put your head down and, and you work and you work and you work. And you know, sometimes it's six days a week. Sometimes it's seven days a week. And, and I get it. Like you got to take that extra shift. It's expensive on Maui. You know, oh, and your coworkers, they need to know Jesus. So like I, I got to work seven days because all these things. And, and don't get me wrong. Work is not bad. We were made as humans to work. The problem is, is when it's not in its proper place. 
Maybe it's something else. Maybe it's um, relationships, you know? So it's, it's, it's spousal relationships or friendships or maybe it's even kids. And like we take our kids everywhere they think they need to go and, and we do everything they think they need to do. And we're like, just pour into our kids, pour into our kids, spend all of my time on my kids. What do they need? What do they need? And again, Kids are not bad. That's not a wrong thing to be thinking about. Kids raising tiny little humans, discipling them to be followers of Jesus is an amazing thing to be doing. I, Kaipo said, I have three little kids and it is the hardest and greatest job that I have. But when I neglect God's presence in my life for anything else, I'm falling short. I'm missing something. I am not gonna be a great dad if I'm neglecting God's presence in my life. I'm not gonna be a great husband, surely if I'm neglecting God's presence in my life, if I'm just being distracted by other things. It could even be church. You show up and you serve and you serve and you say yes to everything and you join the life groups and, and you know, anytime the doors are open, you're walking through it. And it's like, as a teenager, I went to four or five different churches a week because as a teenager, I was like, that's where God is. I'm a little bit older now and I'm like, no, no, no. Yes, yes, God is there, not no, no, no. But, but when I leave, He's still with me. When I'm at home, he's still with me. When I'm reading my Bible, he's still with me. When I'm driving my car, he's still with me. When I'm playing basketball, he's definitely with me. <laughs> the enemy will use the good things in your life to distract you from the greatest thing, God with you. We're almost done. Long after Jesus' death and resurrection, the New Testament author James wrote these words in chapter 4, verse 8 of his uh, in, in James chapter four, verse eight. It's one of my favorite verses because of the power in their truth. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Come close to God and he will come close to you. Again, it's not that God isn't already near to us or with us and in us, like the Bible says, but there is some correlation, James teaches us, there's some correlation between our sense of his nearness and our desire and our efforts to be near to him. There's some connection between how near I believe him to be and how much I am desiring him to be near and how much I am, am trying to be near to him. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. This is one of those verses I've actually challenged God in. Over the years in difficult seasons and difficult moments, I have felt far from God and I've taken this verse at face value and every single time I draw near to God and his presence is revealed as near to me once again. And if you're wondering if I'm just saying that because I'm up on stage with, with the mic, try it. Try it. Draw near to God. Whatever that may look like for you, draw near to him. Tell him. Say, even tell him you want to challenge him on that. Say, God, I don't know if you're really with me. I'm not sure how, believe, how near I believe you to be. So, hey, God, for the next week, I'm going to try to get close to you and see what happens. And I guarantee you that will change your life. Especially if you're in one of those seasons where it just doesn't feel that real. Here's what I want you to remember tonight. And then I'm going to share these things, and then we're going to do something a little bit different, okay? Um, Sean's not here, so I get to change things up. I have three things I hope you take home. So again, if you're a note taker, three things. Every good sermon has three points, okay? Three things. I hope tonight that you are reminded how near to you God is, how with you he is, that you're reminded of this powerful truth how much he wants to be with you, but I, I hope you hear that it's not just his reality, it's his desire. It's not just a truth, it's actually the way God wants it to be. He wants to be with you. And some of you might be thinking, 
Me? What's so great about me? Oh, you are the apple of his eye. Number two, sometimes as God is with us, we are not posturing ourselves to be with him. And he wants us to be with him in the same way that he's with us. And like I said, there's a correlation between our desire and effort to draw near to him and our sense of his nearness. And I want you to remember that because anytime you're feeling distant, I want you to question, where's my desire? Where's my effort? Am I drawing near to him? Okay. Uh, this feels a little confusing as I said it out, so I thought of an example. I told you my favorite sport is basketball. I grew up in Portland, so if you know anything about basketball, I'm a Portland Trailblazers fan. This would be kind of like if the Portland Trailblazers are playing in a game. It could be any game. It doesn't even have to be a championship game. It could even be a preseason game. I like them that much. Okay? And it's at the end of the game. It's a tie game. There's 10 seconds left. I'm watching this game, and then my wife comes and sits with me, and she wants to be with me, and she starts talking to me. Now, I am with her. I might even like nod my head and respond to her, but my posture is surely pointed at what's about to happen in this game. I want to find out, right? And sometimes we kind of do that with God where he's like, I'm here. And, and it's not necessarily like in those moments where you're doing something else. Like it's kind of in every moment where God's with you. And, but our posture is like, yeah, I'm kind of with you too, God, but really I'm focused on this. You know, and it's this like, how do we turn ourselves toward him? Not physically, but like emotionally, internally. How do we turn ourselves, open ourselves up to him in a way where my wife and I can actually connect and the game's over, the TV's off, all that kind of stuff, right? And there's a, a real connection. In the same way with God, like what things do I need to turn off and put away to connect with him? Number three, there might even be some of you in here who have yet to put your faith and your trust in Jesus. And I hope what you hear tonight is that God wants you. He wants to be with you. And like Ahaz, he wants you to choose him and to trust in him for your deliverance, your provision, your salvation. To turn to him, to trust in him. And the greatest gift you will ever receive is his presence in you when you put your faith in him. Uh, Makoto and Tim, you guys can come back up. They're gonna... Um, lead us through a song. I don't even think the words are going to be up because we're going to do something a little bit different. I want you guys, like we're talking about God being with us. And it's wild to live in 2023 post the cross where this truth is so real. It's not just God with creation in the temple. It's not just God in human form walking around us. But God sent his spirit down in you. The spirit that brings with it the power of God, the creator of the universe. The God that rose Jesus from the dead, that like, you know, took away people's blindness and gave them sight. And like all kinds of crazy, wild, amazing things that God did, that Jesus did as he walked the earth. And he says, what I want to do with my time is spend it with you. And so while they're singing these songs, I just want you to take a moment to be intentional and sit with the Lord. Maybe that's listening to the lyrics. Maybe for you, you just want to open up your Bible and read it. You want to journal. You want to pray and talk to him. You want to stand up, sit down, whatever it may be for you, like posture yourself physically and internally in a way where you're like, okay, Lord, here I am. They've got me for like four more minutes while this song is going. 
I want to be with you. I'm going to draw near to you. I'm just going to open myself up and see what happens. And I, I want to share one more example. I know I told you guys to come up, and sorry, here, one more example, because it just happened today for me. Teaching my three kids, seven, five, and four. So I'm teaching the kids, we've been teaching them for way too long how to ride a bike. Any of you guys know how to ride a bike? Any of you ever taught your kids how to ride a bike? Okay. My kids are kind of at that place where, like, they know how to ride a bike physically, but they don't really believe they can ride the bike, so they're, like, scared out of their minds. Okay. So this is what I do. They're on their bike. My arms, my hands are, like, underneath their armpits, but, like, not really touching them. So it's like, I'm right here. You got it. I'm right here. And I'll kind of let go. My youngest, she's four, but she's kind of actually the best at it. As she's riding her bike, she's constantly doing this. What do you think she's looking for? Me. Exactly. She knows how to ride her bike if she would just look forward. But for some reason, in my presence, she feels some sense of security, some sense of safety, some sense of like everything's going to be okay as long as dad's right next to me. It's wild how scared they are of riding their bikes. And I think for us, like I want to be like my daughter when it comes to God, where it's not about like looking forward or looking backward or any of those kinds of things, but just like, yep, he's with me. Yep, he's with me. Everywhere I'm going, everything I'm doing, yep, he's with me. Like just constantly like being reminded of his presence, reminded of his presence. You know, and maybe it's, you know, looking to the left, looking to the right, hearing something somebody says to me, but I want to have that like my daughter does where it's just like, if I look and see you there, okay, cool, I'm good. Everything's good. I got confidence to ride this bike. I'm going to go like flying down Makawao's slopes and like this is going to be amazing, you know, and then all of a sudden, oh, I'm getting a little scared actually. Oh, oh no, dad's still there. We're good. You know, and what happens is it's, it's quite the workout. I let go, and I'm just jogging next to him. You got it. I'm right here. You got it. I'm right here. And man, God is just like that with us. He goes with you everywhere you go. He doesn't send you off with your bike and say, good luck. Hope you don't crash, or I'll be there when you do. I'll come back to you when you crash and burn. He's running with us, going with us. He is in you. I hope that that like, picture just helps. Okay, so Makoto's going to come up. She's going to um, sing this f- for us. And I just, whatever this means to you, sit with the Lord. Have an Emmanuel moment right now in the midst of this service. And then we'll close.
So, Lord, we thank you that you have come. We thank you that you are here. We thank you that you don't leave us. We thank you that you left us this truth of Emmanuel. Thank you for Christmas season where this word comes up over and over again, and it reminds us of your birth, of your life, of your death and your resurrection and your spirit that is in us, Lord. And so I just ask tonight for these people that are here, would we be so reminded of your presence in our life, reminded of the power of your presence, reminded to rely on your presence, reminded of the peace that is found in your presence as, as so many things around us might feel out of whack, not peaceful. You are good. You are good, Lord. We trust you. We trust you. Would you give us the uh, courage this week to draw near to you that we might sense your presence with us. It's in your name we pray. Amen.